Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter the Access Point, a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. Welcome to The Break Room. We are a group of four Black doctors who join every week at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Central Standard Time to talk all things Black mental health at work. And I am coming together with our amazing co-hosts who I want to allow them to introduce themselves because everybody may not know who we are. We're coming in with some bittersweet sentiment and we're going to own that tonight and we're going to talk through that tonight so i'll introduce myself first i'm dr lawanda hill a licensed psychologist in california and texas and then i'm going to throw it to dr today to introduce himself and then dr Pine and then dr nikki all right. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Dr. Jide Bamashigbin. I'm an assistant professor of psychology at Cal State Long Beach. Um, I'm a health psychologist who studies the relationships between stress and mental health and physical health. Um, and I'm a father of two boys. So go on, Dr. Nikki. My name is Dr. Nikki. I'm a licensed psychologist here in the state of Texas. Um, I'm a counseling psychologist by training. I see clients in private practice, specifically um, women and well, black women and um, individuals dealing with either racial trauma recovery or um, relational or sexual well-being, as well as provide DEI services um, in academic and corporate settings. Hey y'all, I'm Dr. Brian Dixon. I'm a child and adolescent and adult psychiatrist here in the great state of Texas, which ain't so great lately, but we'll get to that later. Um, I am also an entrepreneur and I believe in the power of uh, mental health. And so I'm uh, lucky to be here with these wonderful co-hosts. So uh, thanks for having us. All right, y'all. So we just want to, for those of you who are new, welcome. We're going to tell you a little bit about what to expect. For those of you who are recurring, thank you for sticking with us, riding with us, to try to create a space that is going to be therapeutic and healing. So usually we open up with uh, the tea. We do a spill of tea. What's going on in the world? What's happening? We give a little bit of time to it. Then we introduce our topic, and then we have a little bit of discussion. We take questions. And then after that, we wrap up with a last nerve because usually being black in America specifically and in more specifically at work, something is going to get on your last nerve. So that's how we spend our time. But tonight, with everything that's going on, we just didn't feel that it was appropriate to even be talking about feeling the team. We just really want to pause and check in with each other to see how we're doing, how we're navigating having to bear witness to so much Black death, so much Black trauma, um, vicarious trauma. And we just want to model that and hopefully that you all will be able to do that for yourselves. So I'll pop us off. Instead of talking about a, a tea, I just really want to check in and say that I am feeling kind of centered um, tonight. I think that the only reason why I'm feeling 
that centered is because I have actively disengaged from media and social media to be able to take in so much of the trauma because I recognized that prior to this, I was already maxed out on trauma. And so the body ultimately took the score and my body said, hey, this, you you can't handle this. And so I'm feeling anxious as I'm having to lean into it and talk about it tonight because it's inevitable, but that's where I am. How about you, today? Where are you? Um, you know, uh, times are hard right now. You know, times are really hard. There, there's a lot going on, and I think it definitely makes me scared for myself. You know, like what what's going to happen to me? I have two young boys. I'm always worried about them, right? Like, you know, everybody sees them and like, they're so cute. They're so great. You know, they're so wonderful. But um, in 10 years, how are you going to feel about them? Right. right? Um, so it's it's really scary right now. Yeah. How about you, Dr. Brian? Yeah. So um, there's a psychological term that everybody gets to look up. It's called sublimation. Uh, so it's where you take in, uh, an unsavory impulse and you bring it to your consciousness and then you drive it into something that's more productive. Um, that's what I'm doing because I'm so damn pissed off. I, I am the angriest person I know. Um, and um, most of my days I, I wake up and I just think, okay, channel my anger, channel my rage um, because I can't I can't disengage uh, like Dr. Luanda. So I'm, I'm working on it. I'm trying to compartmentalize all this shit and it's not working. So I'm just going to sublimate my rage uh, because I'm just, I'm pissed off and, and tired. I'm just really, really tired. So uh, Dr. Nikki, um, what's up with you? Ooh, so thank you all um, for holding this space. What I have been really wrestling with, um, I mean, you know, we could we could name the litany of uh, black men and women whose life has been cut short by uh, white supremacist police sanctioned um, state violence. But I definitely feel like for many of us, George Floyd was a tipping point or not a tipping point. It was a, it was a different moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, and so since that has happened, the only way that I've described it to say there is no word in the English lexicon for this amount of weariness and grief um, that that I feel resides in my body. I really don't think we've named it. Um, I've been trying to talk about it as Black grief um, in specific. And so that's where I am. And I have this really interesting, I don't, I don't think survivor's guilt is the right term, but there's a part of me that um, doesn't disengage because I feel like I need to be informed. I feel like... Um, if I haven't lived it, then I need, need to acknowledge it. I don't watch the videos of the deaths. I'm intentional about that part, but I, I do, I don't know. For me, it feels like a responsibility to be informed. Um, and I vacillate with that sense of like, is that healthy for me or not? Um, they all sort of hit me. I, I know people say this, but I, I am a big empath. Um, and so I think about... Um, not just the loss of life, not just the traumatic loss of life, but I think about like that ripple uh, mm -hmm. effect, right? And so all of the children that now are part of this quote unquote club that they never wanted to be a part of, all the mothers that are a part of this club that they never would, like they probably prayed would be the last thing that happened to their babies. Um, all of the partners that have lost or even witnessed their partner's grief, um, and I think about what is the impact for us, not just in this moment as a community, but what are the 
right? What do we know about um, epigenetics? What is the long-term consequences for us collectively? Like, how do we ever fucking heal when there's a constant onslaught um, of terror advanced at us? Um, and what does that mean for me in terms of what's required of me for my liberation work? What's required of me personally in my life for what I want for my daughter? So um, it's hard for me to stay centered. Um, I think all of my work and my my energy centers around it, like you, Dr. Dixon, right? Like I am, I do think that I'm intentional about what, am, what resistance am I putting out in the world? What joy am I putting out in the world? What healing am I putting out in the world? But some days, whoo. Mm. Thanks. Thank you. Preach. No, that's that's real. And and I, I think what I'm hearing is there's a combination of things. There's like I'm, I want to acknowledge that there is a strong emotional reaction, right? That brings up all the other things that we've already been carrying, which leads to our physical reactions that we're having. Then there's this like psychological wrestling with what do we do, how much do we engage, how much do we disengage. What responsibility do we feel? Because we are a collective culture. We are communal. So we want to be able to grieve with people who are grieving and, and be joyful with people who are being joyful. And so it just really speaks to the very nuanced experience of Black people as we bear witness to the ongoing institutional state-sanctioned Black death, right? And we've heard that in all of our reactions, and I just want to name that. And that is what we're going to unpack tonight. So what Black people have to often do all the time is pivot, right? There, Dr. Ebony said it maybe a last summer, I believe. It was probably after Breonna Taylor's murder got off, and, or maybe she was murdered, and she said that there's no post-trauma for Black people. There's always just moments in between the next right? Whereas when we think of post-traumatic stress disorder, there is trauma, and then you get beyond it, and you have this reaction after the trauma, and in the ideal world, you can heal. But for Black people, it's always a trauma, and a trauma in this moment in between. And so, while we wanted to talk about spotting allies tonight, that doesn't even seem appropriate to me. I think we're going to talk about it in, in ways that we hope that you can help us move forward and fight back against these white toxicity and so forth, but what we really want to talk about is that cumulative impact of what it means for Black people to constantly bear witness to traumatic Black death, that state sanction, that's institutional, that that activates our prior traumas, right? And what the collective impact is on that. And we also want to hold space for hope, right? Because I do believe that despair is a threat to justice. We can't get there. We need mm -hmm. to honor it. Even if we, we hang out in it for a minute, we, we have to get back to a place of hope, but I think the only place we get to that is to move through it. And so we want to talk about a little bit of that tonight because it's relevant. And so I think what would be most appropriate probably is to just contextualize our experience, like contextualize what's going on, what we're experiencing, what's happening, to give people some language, anything, some language mm -hmm. of what, what we're experiencing and why, and then we can kind of unpack it a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Can I jump in real quick today? Because it, it strikes me as um, we haven't named the thing. We're talking about it, but we haven't named it. And so for context, um, for who those who may come across this in two months or six months, um, 
I think it's important also just to give homage to the lives that were lost. So part of what I, I'll name part of what I'm experiencing is one, we were already in the midst of re-traumatization through having it aired on every news outlet that I was aware of, the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. We had been under that for the past four weeks. And in the context of that, uh, another young Black man was uh, killed with the excuse that it was an accidental murder um, by a police officer what was it, a 10 mile difference, 10 minute difference from Minneapolis? So in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, almost simultaneously with that coming out was some additional footage that came out from the state of Virginia about an Afro Latino um, serviceman who was in his army fatigues that was assaulted by two police officers um, threatened for his life. And so both of those things have been sort of released out into all airwaves Um and so we are not just managing um, the ongoing trauma of trying to understand what might happen with George Floyd. And I think the other piece, Lawanda, about this one is your mention of hope. I think there is a sense of hope for many of us that this is such an egregious experience, that there were so many worldwide eyes on it, that this might be the one time we get a conviction. Yeah. yeah. But I think that hope can also be like a dangerous thing, right? Like, it becomes more, everything becomes much more fragile. And so I think a lot of Black people were already hyper vigilant, which is a symptom of PTSD, right? Already hyper vigilant. And then these two other instances happen sort of back to back. Um, and so it becomes a thing of when do you catch your breath? Um, and so that is a part of the current context. But what Jide is going to help us think about and talk about is this ongoing broader context with which these moments in time live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, th thank you, Dr. Nikki. Thank you, Dr. Wanda. So absolutely, um, these things happen in a broader context, right? So according to the Washington Post, in the last year, about 991 people have been killed by the police, okay? Like murdered by police, okay? Um, and that's actually a relatively stable number. Every year, it's been about 1,000. Every year, that's it's been tracked. But interestingly, it's only been tracked about like the last two or three years. Okay. So before there was actually no federal tracking of how many people were killed by police. <laughs> right. So that's just one context to put this in. The vast majority of people who get killed by police are men. Okay. Um, in fact, they're often mostly white. The in sheer number, it's mostly white. Okay. But black men are disproportionately likely to be killed by the police. Okay. We only make up 13% of the population, but make up about 33% of those people killed by police, okay? And black men are far more likely to be killed by police while they're unarmed in comparison to white and Hispanic men, all right? Um, Dr. Nikki, thank you for bringing up the, the case of Dante Wright, the unarmed black man who was killed by the police officer, Kim Potter in, Minna in Minnesota, right? In Brooklyn Center. Um, Karan Nazario was the police, uh, the sergeant or the lieutenant who was assaulted by police officers on camera, right? Um, Matthew Zadok Williams recently was killed in DeKalb County, Georgia, okay? Um, and they're trying to say he lunged at police with a knife, but witnesses say that's not what happened. Uh, just recently, Adam Toledo, a 13-year-old boy in Chicago, was killed by a police officer when his hands were up. 
They just released the video today. His hands were up. The police officer said, stop running, put your hands up. He turned around and put his hands up and then he murdered him, right? Um, and, you know, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, before the before it went out, she raised the bridges in Chicago, right? The bridge that connects the poor side and the rich side, right? And that's always something they do when they know that there's about to be a protest or something like that. Um, Peyton Ham, a 16-year-old white kid, murdered by police in Maryland for holding a pellet gun, right? And that still matters. That still matters. It's not acceptable for that to happen. Um, the officer who shot and paralyzed Jacob Blake at the end of March, really, really quietly, they put him back into duty and said he didn't do anything wrong, right? Um, last week, a Pentagon police officer shot and killed two Black men who were driving away from him because he said he thought they were robbing his car, Okay. Um, and this is what we live with every single day, right? Like every, every day you read the news and it's something else. It's something else. It's something else. Um, there's some research by Professor Siri Alang, who is a professor at Lehigh University. She published this paper in the American Journal of Public Health. It's a really, really great paper. I highly recommend you read it. It's on police brutality and white supremacy. And she points out that police brutality impacts Black health on an individual level, on a communal level, and on a structural level, right? So what happens doesn't just impact the person who it happens to, it impacts all of us, okay? So let's talk about some of the ways how. Well, one, it kills people, right? <laughs> that's, one, that's one way it kills people, right? Just, 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 just off rip, it kills people. Um, and even everybody who isn't killed, there are people who suffer from severe injuries for the rest of their lives because of the things that police officers do, right? Two, there's adverse physiological responses that increase morbidity, right? So this is a direct quote. Witnessing or experiencing harassment, routine unwarranted searches, and deaths that go unpunished send a message to Black communities that their bodies are police property, disposable, and undeserving of dignity and justice. Defending the character of loved ones after the police have killed them can also be excruciating, eliciting more negative emotions. I mean, how many times have we seen the character assassination that goes on of young Black people after they died? We saw it with Breonna Taylor. We saw it with Sandra Bland. We saw it with Trayvon Martin. We saw it with anybody you can think of, right? There's always the character assassination that comes on afterward. These um, police brutality incidents, they, um, there's racist public reactions that cause a lot of stress, right? Um, black people often have the task of explaining to their non-Black friends, and this is another quote, co-workers and strangers, the connection between structural racism and the latest police shooting. This is a profoundly stressful process to undergo while grieving these deaths, right? So imagine all this happening, right? And you go to work and your co-worker's like, well, he shouldn't have ran. Well, you know, he had a warrant. Well, you know, he should have been complied. He should have X, Y, Z, right? Trying to justify the deaths of, you know, mostly young, unarmed Black men, right? Next, um, you know, police brutality often results in arrest, incarceration, legal, medical, and funeral bills that cause financial strain. Another quote. In addition to the job loss after incarceration, because remember, a lot of people who don't die, they just take them to jail afterward, right? After they, after they beat your ass, they take you to jail, right? Um, survivors of brutality have to deal with the disabilities from the police use of excessive force. Police brutality also affects the economic productivity of Black communities because loved ones have to take time away from paid work to grieve, to plan and attend funerals, and organize protests, right? And these events result from police brutality, and they take away resources from already often poor Black communities, right? And then last, 
th these are also just signs that police brutality is an integrated oppressive structure and it causes systematic disempowerment. Another quote, excessive police force and inadequate prosecution of perpetrators might increase feelings of powerlessness in the black community, diminishing perceptions of gains made by the civil rights movement. Frequently, the only semblance of justice for victims of police brutality is to gain sympathizers in the court of public opinion. To do this, black people seemingly have no other option than to make public the videos or photographs that show the private and last moments of loved ones' lives. Okay. And this was published in 2017, all right? This wasn't even published like today, right? And all this is absolutely, absolutely still relevant, okay? So my question that I posed to all of you, we live with these experiences all the time. How does this impact us? How did this impact our ability to work? And what do we need in allies? Yeah, I'll jump out there first. So um, one of the things that I kept thinking about um, uh, when Dr. Lawanda said, you know, the body keeps the score, um, it's the idea of kind of learned helplessness. And in this case, um, we learn helplessness as a protective mechanism, because every time we go to do something that we're supposed to be doing, we get shot and killed and uh, and disenfranchised, right? Hey, let's go vote. And then they change the laws. Oh, hey, let's go for a walk on. Uh, there's a, another video I saw where a dude was just walking on the damn sidewalk and this uh, white guy was acting a fucking fool, right? Uh, we can't even walk on a sidewalk, on a public sidewalk. It's not his sidewalk, um, uh, the the uh, guy's sidewalk. So yeah, and after a while, when you get beat down enough, you learn not to do stuff. The problem is, and it, it's not our fault. Uh, it, it, in that case, it's a protective mechanism because our bodies and our minds are keeping the score. And so, yeah, it's really hard uh, to uh, Dr. Nikki's point. So, and Dr. Luanda's point, I'm, I'm trying to find the hope. Uh, there's a, a term called cognitive dissonance. And I struggle with that because I'm around white folks all the time. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I, I would like to think that they're looking out for my best interest. But now I have to wonder, are they? And what does what the hell does that mean? And I struggle with that, especially on days like this. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know what it means for a black person at work. It's it's hard. I have so many reactions sharing that. I just have so many different reactions and I keep going back to this. I guess what lingers with me the most is like have to prove a case so that so as to gain right, sympathizers. And I think about what it might feel like for somebody to be traumatized but then have to share their trauma in hopes that you may still and hope that you may find them human enough to be able to react as an ally, right? That's my first reaction. My second is really is to what you shared, Dr. Brian, which is this learned helplessness. And I, and I can say as someone who has struggled with learned helplessness, and I think that that's important for us to name for people who may be listening, who may be having a reaction, because it's very real. And I think it's a, it's a psychological conditioning. You know, that once you're, so let me go back. So you learn helplessness in a certain context, right? Because that's what you need to survive. And then that, that context shifts and you still feel helpless. And so I think that that can, continues to perpetuate the marginalization, the oppression. Like these are all different thoughts that are running through my mind that if you don't recognize that, you may just surrender. You may just surrender. I, I, I thank you, uh, Brian, for kicking us off because I had also lots of reactions. So for me, it's not the learned helplessness, it's the cognitive dissonance. And this is what I've always wrestled with in the sense that 
I don't frame it. I don't experience the learned helplessness because I'm clear it's a systematic disempowerment. I'm clear it's a setup from jump. Where I really struggle is you then expect me to treat you with civility, quote unquote, professionalism, which we know is a dog whistle. But there is then a level of expectation of of um, kindness that I'm required. No, niceness is not kindness. Let me be clear. Niceness that I'm required required to extend to you in professional setting to make you feel comfortable about my grief, about my trauma. And that, that is the, that's the place where I would always get stuck. Like, um, and I would be at, I got to a point where I would be at work and people were like, Hey, how are you? I was like, well, you know, they killed another black man in the street yesterday. So not great. And they would. Yeah. All right. And they move on. Right. Um, but that doesn't, I think this is why I always talk about racism as being a perpetual catch 22 for black people. Because I want to work in an environment in which I have colleagues and many of us need colleagues. We need more than allies. I think we need accomplices. We need sponsors. We need champions in the workplace to be able to navigate it. But you leave me in such a position with my rage, with my, with my um, forced disempowerment, with my grief that I don't want to make that connection with you because you are not perceiving me in, in my humanity in a way that allows me to center my humanity in a culturally congruent way. And that's where I always get stuck. I just want to flip tables though. <laughs> I just right. really want to be able to hold up a sign, you know, like the old church saying and be like, I ain't fucking with you today. And just, that's it. That's all I got for you. Right. What is what is the right response look like in situations like this, right? So something happens on Sunday and you have to go in and work on Monday. What is it? What does a supportive work environment look like for that, right? Is it a place where uh, we talk about it, right? You know, is it a place it's where no hey, work. Well, you know, something happened? We talk about it. There's no work. Can we, can we just throw that out? And I know that's not the reality for anybody, but if we're talking about aspiring and you want to know how you could be an ally, how you could be an accomplice, don't expect me to produce. That is capitalism that's locked up in white terrorism and toxicity about everything. Forget what's happening. Uh, remove your humanity and produce anyway. No, that's not human. That's not how our spirit is set up. That's not how our psyche is set up. So don't expect me to produce, right? Let's just put that in the atmosphere as one response. And don't punish me when I don't produce. Don't change the evaluative standards. Don't change my performance review as a result of that choice. Because that is how the system kicks in. That to me is, is really how we talk about structural and systemic racism. Because the system is set up to not see you. So even when you create mechanisms for me to be seen, it's not big enough to, to actually fully encompass what I need. So it needs to be both ends. Yeah, and I, I would add, there are mechanisms that exist in every workplace to be able to give um, space for um, times when you're not feeling well, right? So if, you, if you're sick, you can call in. If someone dies in your family, you can take time. If you're having a child, you can take time. We need to be that aggressive with black mental health. We need mm -hmm. companies to recognize, you know what? Black folks are going through some damn things, uh, not of their own choosing or of their own control. And we need to be more aggressive on the corporate front 
to recognize that because the mechanism is already there. You can give somebody a damn day off or a week off. You have that mechanism, right? Um, so yeah, I I, I, I I agree. I mean, and um, most of what I have seen, and and I'm happy to hear from other folks if there are better models. But the model that that corporate America seemed to take on post um, summer 2020 was let's find all of these not for profits that are already doing the work and partner with them by giving them a hundred million or we're going to a lot of hundred million over five years to these eight different groups, which we all could do math. We could all do that real quick math. <laughs> that ain't a whole lot of money. Take that money and then pour it into your actual employee, right? That you actually have employees who have had to sell dinners, who've had to take up collections, who've had to put up GoFundMe's to bury their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Put money into that. Yeah. Put money into these are set aside I paid days off for experiencing black grief, mm-hmm. anti Asian grief, filling fill the blank grief, right? Because mm-hmm. white supremacy is at an all time high in these 2021 streets, it'll come back with a vengeance. Um, so there's resources, mm-hmm. and 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 I would say I agree with that. I think that that needs to be a category where you are coding for time off or whatever, like black grief is real and because of the way we are with structural racism the chances are high that we're gonna experience it. Um I and I think about to me it, it's a very brings a real practical example to me about what allyship is at this stage of the game I am looking for an accomplice, but if you want to be an ally at this point, let me give a practical example. So all this stuff is going down, we are watching the trial of the murder of George Floyd, we see another black man who was unarmed, who was murdered state-sanctioned violence, and most Black people are at work and still having to navigate. And we're in a meeting, and I'm just like, all right, y'all, so here go the agenda that we need to work through. And one of my white colleagues who considers herself an ally, which, by the way, I do believe don't refer to yourself as an ally unless a Black person says you're an ally. You don't get to call yourself an ally. You have to earn that title, and you definitely have to earn being an accomplice. I've labeled her as an ally. She's like, you know, the one that I just want to acknowledge, literally verbatim, I just want to acknowledge everything that's going on right now, you know, with the, the recent murder of black people and the trial. Is, do you think that it would be helpful if I let me for you to just take off any kind of load? And I say, you know what? I do. Go ahead. Let me see the vision. I don't have it in me today. Read it. Take on some of this emotional labor that I am holding, that I am carrying, and take one of the 50 million tasks they've given me, because that's another thing, as a Black woman, you expect me to produce all the time. Do something that matters and alleviates the pain points and the pressure points that we in this moment. Amen. I, 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 I hearken back to one of our podcasts uh, six weeks ago uh, with Black Excellence and John Henryism. I just, Dr. Nikki, you taught me this term and now it just, I just feel it in my bones every time I wake up and I work my three jobs. And yeah, if someone came up to me and said, you know, I see you, I hear you, I see what's going on. Let me do this for you. If you want to be an ally, Uh, That's a great place to start. Um, You know, uh, uh, whenever we lose somebody in the black culture, um, we celebrate and we support those uh, that family. Right. We go to the house. We get we get the food going. Hey, let me uh, let me clean up the dishes. What can I do for you? And this is one of those times we are culturally mourning. We every single black person is in mourning. 
uh, again and again and again because all this shit keeps happening. And yes, help a brother out, uh, do some shit, get some shit done so that then we don't have to run around uh, and have our heart burst like John Henry because we're trying to do the most to um, to keep up and catch up in this in this context. I think um, one of the most important things that you're all mentioning right now is that it's not just support. It's action with the support, right? Because, you know, one thing a lot of white people like to do is send you a little message like, you know, I'm thinking of you, right? And it's like, no, that, that doesn't mean anything to me, right? I'm thinking of me, right? <laughs> you know, that's that's essentially the thoughts and prayers, right? Um, you know, but all, all of you mentioned that it comes with a, a, a bit of action, right? It's like, you know, I, I see you, I feel you. How can I help you? Right. What 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 are the ways that I can do to assist you? Right. Um, do you how do you all feel about your boss holding space to have conversations about this? You know, let's say they do give you a week off. Right. How do you feel about a boss having, you know, saying, you know, let's hold space. Let's have a meeting to talk about it. Are you against that? Do you want that? How are you feeling? Miss me with that. I don't want it. Yeah, I don't want it either. Um, it's it, no. but, but here's what I do want. And I. This is what I want in an in a part C answer to the previous question. For me, real allies do the work when I'm not around. That part. I don't I don't really necessarily need you. I mean, I'll take it if you want to buy me some wine or chocolate or give me a meal. I'm never gonna say no to those things, right? <laughs> you wanna run the meeting, go for it. But what's most important to me, are you talking to your granddaddy? Do you talk to your brother? Do you talk to your friend's husband who's a good cop, one of the good apples? Talk to them. Get them together. Check them. You've been going to all these trainings and reading and doing all of these things and really listening to your Black coworkers. Then get with your own people because you have more leverage with them than I will ever have than seeing my people get gunned down in the street will ever have. Use that leverage when I am not present to make changes in the spaces where I won't be, but people who look like me might be and who, who might live another day because you've opened up someone else's thoughts about how to see themselves in the world. Yeah, I I am always impressed at how much uh, or how many times white folks run from that uncomfortable uh, place. Uh, they, uh, especially on social media, they just don't say anything. Yes, yeah, like coming into the break room at work. And they just say nothing. Now, I don't need you to be my therapist because, again, uh, we're the break room. We're all about um, therapy and empowerment, and we can have therapists outside of the workplace. So I'm not trying to uh, have you be my therapist and process trauma with me. What I am saying is that when you don't acknowledge it, you you perpetuate the trauma. So acknowledge it. I'm really sorry. Validate. I'm really sorry that happened. I don't know how to help but I'm going to go do my work and then go do your fucking work. Cause at the end of the day, I can't do your work for you. You have to do it yourself. Um, and yeah, Dr. Nikki, I'm with you. You have to do uh, the heavy lifting with your family and your friends and your neighbors. Cause you probably live in a white neighborhood, right? The, the, our white uh, allies, they probably live in a white neighborhood and go to a white church. Yep. They go, go do your work. Uh, and, and then as black folks, uh, reach out. Uh, one of the healing things about the break room is, yeah, we all get to kind of commiserate and, and process this stuff uh, together. And it's really, really important. Because it's um, really about undoing your conditions. If you want to be an ally, here's one thing I need you to really come to terms with. No one escapes conditioning. I'm trying to tell you to pull your mic closer. You're a little low. Sorry. No one escapes conditioning. No one escapes socialization. Period. That means messages 
that are systematic over time that work together to create a perception of a reality that you have with people. I want you to really stick with that. Nobody escapes socialization. And no one damn sure escapes racial socialization. That is inherent with bias. That is inherent with uh, dehumanization and validation. These stereotypes we have about black folks specifically. Hence why when you see a black male, you perceive a threat. And you don't perceive a human. Okay? We all have it. Let's just stop playing like we don't. We do. Everybody has biases because none of us escape socialization. Number one, if you want to be an ally, sit with that truth. Wrestle with that truth. Take it to your therapist and not to your black therapist, giving them more labor. <laughs> Take that to your therapist and wrestle with your socialization. Then, two, commit to undoing it. Nothing is constant but change. Everything that you think you know about a cultural group, about black people, about brown people, is not true. Unlearn it. You can intellectually understand some shit, but emotionally you got to internalize it. That takes work. So if you just read a book, uh, Robert D'Angelo, or How to Be an Anti-Racist, I'm, I'm here to tell you, you just in kindergarten. It's doctoral levels for this shit about unlearning. You know we're near that. You don't yep. even have the fundamental concepts to understand what it means to be racist, what it means to, to perceive people in a biased way. So you want to be an ally, stop trying to be quick to get to action and alleviate your guilt because you're sensitive yourself. You're not sensitive to people who are marginalized and do the fucking work to unlearn. Period. There's this Period. cartoon. I wish I could pull it up, but there's this cartoon of this black guy. He's got hiking boots on, shorts, his backpack, and it's a white dude in like business casual. He's got like a sweater and some loafers. And he's bent over like, whoo, let me catch my breath. The black dude is like this, and the, the post says recognizing race race is a problem in America, but doing something about it is still on a higher elevation, right? And that is exactly what I thought of. You know, like if the first time you've ever talked about this stuff was summer 2020, but boo, you still in head start. You're not ready for this PhD level conversation. <laughs> you are not ready. And and that let me be clear. The idea that you think you're ready is a very function of your white privilege. Mm -hmm. It has taught you that other people's experiences are objectified, that you can read it in a book and automatically you are at the same level as someone else. There is a certain level of expected familiarity in white culture that does not exist in all other black and brown cultures. You need to, you need to capitulate to that if you want to actually do the work of being an ally. You need to get in that mindset that you're not ready for these big big girl conversations and big, big boy conversations. But you can have head start conversations with your other head start friends. You can do that all day long. Circle time. Do your own work. It really will serve us better as a collective if that is how you choose to use your time. If your intentions are genuine. If they are genuine and not performative. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna post that on my social media tomorrow. Have him start conversation with your start friend. Thank because, you. Because when I went to graduate school to become a psychologist, I didn't read in the let's just even back up, not even grad school. Let's say undergrad when I began to begin to understand the fundamentals of psychology. You don't read. Oh wow, this is what it means to have some disorders and think that you're ready to go diagnose and treat. It's a humility. <laughs> That you understand is levels to this. 
So you don't read a book and think that you're ready and that you understand that your condition is undone. It is a process to become a psychologist. But a process to become a psychiatrist. It's a process to become a social psychologist. And you have to humble yourself to that process. It is a process of unlearning, a process of un- undoing. And that is not all. It is in part intellectual, but it's not all intellectual. Absolutely. Um, I think we got a great question. I want to pose it to you all. All right. Um, What do you do at work when your white boss literally leads inclusive leadership trainings, but censors you when you want to bring up the pay gap or promotion policy issues your organization has when discussing DEI for fear of criticizing the organization? This, I want you to know this is not something unique to you. Thank you for asking the question, but this is, oof, that's not something unique to you. So go ahead. We'd like to answer that one. Uh, I'll throw out the easy answer, which is um, hopefully they're using some kind of paperwork or some kind of written something. And you can then pull that back to them and say, yeah, so I'm not really understanding how you're doing this. And I'm saying this, like, help that make, make that make sense to me, right? Because at the end of the day, if you if you challenge his manhood, because that's uh, toxic masculinity, if you challenge his whitehood, uh, oh, ooh, uh, ooh, whitehood, ooh, man, that, that's white toxicity. I like whitehood. Right? I, like white I was like, wait a minute, what, uh-oh. Um, so if, if you do that directly, he'll get defensive, it'll be a hot mess, it, it makes your day go real, real long, right? So instead, st- I would say stick to what's written and then put it right back in their face, but I the, the DEI experts are here, y'all. So, uh, what you got? I have I have a quick response if I could get in. Um, my response is, you know, at this point, you're kind of, and this is, you know, the thing about being black. You're damned if you you, damned if you don't, right? You're damned if you don't because you're not going to get paid. You're not going to get paid what you need to be paid, right? Yep. You're stuck. You're damned if you do because you're going to say something and then you might get retaliated against. You might get fired. Um, they might turn the office against you. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, I would always say, say, say what you have to say. You know what I'm saying? Be, be mindful, be careful, but say what you have to say. So at least you could say you said it, you know, because oftentimes you'll regret not saying anything later on. So mm-hmm. that's what I have to say. So here's what I would say. Um, I agree with what my esteemed colleagues have, have shared so far. Um, one of the things that I think you have to always um, that, okay, that saying, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. And I really think that's a mentality Black people in the professional work setting have to have, that at any point there could come a force point, force point between you choosing to stay in an institution and leave it. And that that is a complicated set of factors around your time put in, your compensation, what your life circumstances are, all of those things. I'm not di- diminishing the compl- complexity of that. But I do think at most things in life are, are simple at the end of the day when we talk about solutions. So the, I would keep that in mind, right? Is And then for me, I use the can I sleep at night test. I use can I look my daughter in the eye test. And if it's something that I cannot abide by in either of those spaces, then I then it's up to me to figure out how to strategize and negotiate. So here's where the real work of allies and accomplices come into play. If I believe Dr. Dixon's uh, approaches um, uh, advice is right, right, like oftentimes a direct confrontation, that is a big distinguishing hallmark between most uh, communities of color, but especially Black folks and white folks is direct communication. And so even when we are being our softest and our most um, uh, reserved, we still are threatening. 
right? Intimidating, aggressive. Intimidating. So one, I am a huge proponent of put it in writing, right? I'm happy to bring it up in personal conversation, but I would come with documentation. Here's what I know. Here's a little bit of the national data. National data. This is where the John Henryism comes in because we got to do the extra work to even be able to make a small point. But go in prepared for the meeting and say, I understand that this institution has high esteem and we want to keep that way. But part of our capacity to continue to innovate is to be able to move nimbly through these complex situations. Can we partner together to figure out the best way to make it happen? Because that way, and then he gets to step up and do his white man thing mm-hmm. and take credit for it, which he's going to do anyway. And then, then you follow that up with the, as per our conversation, I attach these documents because I know you couldn't really integrate it all while we were having our one-on-one. So they're here going forward. And then you say, I want to circle back to that conversation that we had, Steve, three months ago. I haven't seen any movement. I know performance evals are coming up. Could we revisit that? And then when Steve doesn't respond, then you go to your accomplice and say, hey, say, say Caitlin, you said you was an ally. Could you holler at your boy, Steve? Because you know mm-hmm. it affects women too. Mm-hmm. You, you know, right? This is, this is how you play the game. Mm-hmm. And then you have to decide if you've done all those machinations, when you've played all the cards that you have, is it worth it to stay there? Or do you take your talents and skills somewhere else where you will be valued and properly compensated? Take your talents and That part. And I, and I want to name that because I think that was first of all brilliant. That was freaking brilliant because it <laughs> walked people through the steps. But I want whoever asked the question, I want you to understand that it is performance. Like in a lot of ways, it is, is what we talk about. Your performance is if you care. How can you be an inclusive ambassador? And then you're silencing what I am serving to minority voices. You haven't internalized this work. This is a game. How to play the game. Mm-hmm. Right? How am I going to play the game? And then, you know, you do that test. It's, can I look myself in the, in the uh, mirror at night knowing that I played your game or I've been playing your game for many years? Or do I want to go somewhere else where people, I don't have to play this game on this level, with this mm-hmm. level of energy. Right? That's always a conscious choice. And I think that that learn helplessness that we may have learned earlier that we just gotta do it. I'm pretty certain you're valuable and I'm pretty certain you have an amazing skill set that some people would appreciate. Now, will will white people continue to white in their white toxicity? Absolutely. And will you have to navigate that? Absolutely. But you still are empowered to make your own choice. Do you want to play the game? How much energy do you want to give to the game? And do you want to take your talents, as LeBron said, to my South Beach. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> and and we want to acknowledge that it really sucks that we have to play this game. We don't mm-hmm. want to downplay the significance of the fact that, like, you know, when you're a white man, like, you don't have to play the game, right? They offer you the maximum salary from Jump Street, right? You know, it sucks that we have to play the game. Um, but we want you to, you know, do your best, get your coins. You know, that's what we want from you all. There's another question, right? Yeah. So the next question, um, and uh, and yes, keep we sending love us questions. questions. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and if we, uh, if uh, if you have a question or you want to email us privately, so thebreakroomlc at gmail.com. So the question is for y'all: um, How do you know if you are accurately reading your current emotional readiness to engage in that kind of heavy emotional lifting with the people that are harming you, either passively or intentionally? 
Can you trust your own self-assessment in the midst of this continuing trauma? And damn, that is a question. Um, I, I, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, let me jump in first and then I want to pass it off. So, Period. Yeah. 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 So um, how do how do I know if you're accurate? So I, I love the uh, listen to your feel, uh, listen to your gut. Right. So uh, when you start to uh, get heartburn, when you start when your heart starts racing and your hands get clammy, sometimes it's a panic attack, but sometimes it's yeah, you need to listen to what's going on. Uh, it may not be that right moment to then jump in, because sometimes when you say things and your your you know, your blood pressure's up and your heart is racing, sometimes you might might say the wrong thing. So if you're one of those folks, take some time. Think about it. There's always the next day. That business ain't going nowhere. Right. Um, or, um, you know, I say go for broke. If you're pissed off and you feel convicted, go for it. Um, that's uh, that's kind of how I do it. But how, do, how 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 does everybody else do it? So that was my my response, but, but clearly, um, I think it is a function of white supremacy to teach you not to trust yourself, because white supremacy. <laughs> say that one more time, please. Say that I again. think it is a function of white supremacy <laughs> to teach you not to trust yourself, because part of white supremacy thought is that everything is codified and only written knowledge is legitimate knowledge. And we know that we have access to a wide variety of sources of knowledge and wisdom. And if everything in your body says this is some bullshit, it might not be bullshit for Brian. It might not be bullshit for G-Day, but it's bullshit for you. And that is enough. <laughs> that is enough. I am so, I'm at this place. I don't know if it's because I'm, in my mid forties or whatever, but I, we ain't got time, sis. Like literally they are killing us in the streets for black women. They will kill us in our home. There is no time for you to doubt yourself on this. So how you want to move forward there, there requires a level of sophistication that you can engage, but some days you might also not be at a place to do that. And I'm okay with that too. I, I will be honest and say, I think black men get away with expressing their anger um, much more so than black women, that the sanctions are, are not the same for them as they are for us. But it doesn't mean you have, don't have a right to have access to that for yourself. Mm -hmm. What about you, Dr. Lawanda? What do you think? That's a mic drop. I think it's absolutely correct. We are, this is what I need black people to come back to. The colonization, the internalization of anti-blackness, the, the white toxicity that comes through our brains has tried its hardest to rid of us this fact that we are not, we are connected to something greater than us. Like we move as spiritual beings, we move as interpersonal beings. And to discount that is fundamentally against our existence. We're not those people. We're not those people. We are people who have intuition, who have discernment, who are connected, who get answers from being in relationship with people. We're not individualistic. We're collectivists. Mm -hmm. And when we start to discount that, then that's how you know it's a product of all of these toxic things that I just made. Mm -hmm. So how do you get back to that? You got to get back to that. You got to get back to your core on that. And sometimes that means disengaging. Sometimes that means reserving your, your energy. I don't want to explain to you how toxic you are. Because guess what? You ain't worth my energy. 
I, I, I love this question. Thank you for asking. I have a really quick response. Um, building on what Dr. Brian said, you know, sometimes it's cool to take a second. There's nothing wrong with taking a minute to yourself and processing, repeating to yourself, maybe writing down what happened. That's often a good thing. Like in, in, in the moment, writing down what was said to you so you can remember that. And this is why community is important. Um, you should have a trusted black person in your life that you can go, sis, bro, bruh, can I talk to you about this real quick? My boss said X, Y, Z to me. Am I tripping? Right? Like that, that, that's, that's a common question, right? That black people ask, am I tripping? Am I bugging? Let me know if I'm bugging, right? And you can go from there. That's one way as well. But thank you for your question. I've also been known to draft a mad ass email. I have to send it. But I, maybe there's something cathartic to hitting those keys and reading somebody for filth. And then I'll save it as a draft. And then I might have that conversation. And then I'm going to go back in and edit it. I'm probably going to always open up this mouth, but I might make a more edited version. <laughs> yes. I don't lady type, but I love that. Um, but, but at the end of the day, the take home is your experience is valid, right? The whole reason we have the break room is a universal recognition that black people at work are marginalized, diminished, oftentimes distorted in, in our perceptions of ourselves, underutilized and overworked. It is a universal experience. How it shows up and manifests in your particular world of work varies from person to person. The, the experiences and phenomenon of yourself that you bring to it varies from person to person, but this is a collective universal experience and that's why we're here. Phew. All right, we covered a lot. I think this has been cathartic. I hope yes. it's a model to you all that when, when people, when black people are killed and murdered, it, we, we all feel it and we all are having to navigate this systemic racism that impacts us psychologically, physically, emotionally, and the impact we've begun to even name and the questions we begin to doubt ourselves. That we begin to question ourselves, we begin to you know, submit ourselves to things that we may or may not have to endure. So I'm really hopeful that somebody was moved by this episode, that you go back and you put it on repeat however many times you need to do it. Um, but we want to make certain that we just validate, number one, name, then validate and acknowledge the experience and give you some language for it. Because we can't address what we can't name. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of language for the things that we're experiencing because they're, you know, racism and stuff. Mm -hmm. So we have, I've enjoyed it. I don't know about y'all, but I've enjoyed this experience to be able to, you know, lean in. Always. You know, be vulnerable and experience these emotions as intense as they are to help other Black folks who are navigating this at work. Um, and I hope y'all have enjoyed it as well. So we get to the end of our episode where we have last night. And we tell ourselves, it keeps going up now. First it was 60 seconds, then it was 90 seconds. But I don't know, it may be even 120 minutes tonight. I don't know. But we talk about what has come on our last nerve because I do believe that being able to name something and get it out helps you move through it. Mm -hmm. So, what has been the last nerve? We haven't I have decided. One. I have one. Who got it? I have one. Jesus, G, they say me. I have one. I have one. I have one. Um, so, uh, I don't have the time or whatever. I'm just going to go. Um, so, after the shooting, the murder, the state-sanctioned murder of Dante Wright on Sunday, because that's what it was. Um, you know, Joe Biden came out, um, President Joe Biden came out and said, 
Um, there is, I've seen the video, but there is no excuse for looting. Okay. And that is the whitest fucking answer you could ever give. I, I absolutely hate that because it, it's, it's not, there's no excuse for killing unarmed black people. Right. I've, I've never, I, in fact, I don't think I've ever heard a president say police stop killing unarmed black people. Right. I, I, have you, I've never heard it. Right. Um, so no, all have, I ever hear is a few bad apples. A few bad apples. They, you know, they don't spoil Spoils the whole fucking bunch. <laughs> it's the rest of the statement. Bullshit. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I took over. No, 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 no. That, no, that's it. I, I'm happy we could uh, share share this moment together. You know, but like, there's no excuse for looting. There's there there's no there's not enough money in the world that's worth Dante Wright's life, okay, or Adam Toledo's life, or Peyton Ham's life. Nothing, okay. So you know what? Burn down the Dollar Tree. I don't care. You know, because that doesn't matter, right? Another 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 black person's dead. Yeah. So that 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 got on my last nerve. I forgot that he said that, and I just you know that's just the whitest response. And it's like people are dying. Yeah, white white and dumb. Because at the end of the day, he has multiple layers of people who know better and sh- and, and are advising him. Right? He ain't dumb. He know how to win elections against another racist dude. Right? So don't 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 bring that shit up in here. You know better. Just shut your damn mouth. Robin Robin Ooh, Lord. But, you know, this is what LaWanda just talked about. I will say this. That's that unconscious bias. That's that socialization. Mm. His 70-whatever-year-old worldview is still in that space of you got good Negroes and not good Negroes. Now, he ain't gonna never say that out loud. He's not that dumb. But it comes (laughs) out. Like, in that language, right? It comes out. Mm -hmm. And what triggers me always about that, G-Day, is that what it does is fundamentally erase my humanity that lets me know you have no emotional connection to this experience because if you understood the amount of rage black people have to suppress every single day to continue to participate in this society you would never once fix your lips to say peaceful protest that is an absolute absurd reaction Nonsense. to blatant violence used to police us and terrorize us, quite frankly. Mm. Woo! Yeah, thank you. I'm happy we were able to share that last nerve. It was nice to share. It. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, I took over, and, and but that, I just... That's that on that. It's, like, yeah. it's level to this. If y'all missed that episode of The Break Room, go back and check it out. Because unfortunately, mm-hmm. it still stands. There's levels to this. Mm-hmm. 2020 and Wild Black is 2021 Wild Black. It's level preach. Two. And preach. Yep. And one of the great things, just got the notice, y'all. Uh, y'all's break room is growing up. We got a new website, uh, a new email address. So it's living com. So that's on the record now. Send us emails. We love to hear from y'all because we're growing up and we are super, super stoked to uh, support y'all in the workplace. Thank you. We want y'all to be well. Thank you. Bye, y'all.